Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Today we have something really special for you in honor of the 2019 annual meeting. We've selected a research presentation from each section of the meeting to be highlighted in the podcast. For each, we will interview the presenting author to discuss the study's findings and importance. Unfortunately, today my regular co-host Rachel Frank is not able to join us. To even try to come close to replacing her charisma, I've recruited seven guest hosts, one for each of the included presentations. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Children and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, or any of the institutions of our guests. I truly hope you enjoy these interviews and that they enhance your annual meeting experience. I'm here with Dr. Brian Cole from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. Dr. Cole, how are you? Great. Thank you for doing this. Dr. Justin Griffin from Virginia Beach is here as our guest co-host. Justin, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Peter. We are here to discuss Dr. Cole's project entitled Prospective Randomized Clinical Trial of Biologic Augmentation with Resenchable Stem Cells in Patients Undergoing Arthroscopic Rotator Cuff Repair. Dr. Cole, can you give us a high-level summary of this project? Yes. This is a study that is a randomized, prospective, single-blind study to the extent that the patients have no idea which treatment arm they were uh, relegated to, uh, investigating the use of bone marrow concentrate in patients who have an isolated supraspinatus tear, uh, treated with a generally similar technique using a uh, transosseous equivalent rotator cuff repair, half of whom get a injection of bone marrow concentrate, half of whom get a stab wound over the ASIS, mimicking a bone marrow concentrate aspirate. And the primary endpoints are traditional PROs, as well as MRI at one year. So, Dr. Cole, tell us more exactly where, where do you put the BMAC, between the tendon and the bone, subchromially? So, the study involves a complete arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, followed by uh, getting rid of any excess fluid within the subacromial region using a spinal needle, injecting the bone marrow concentrate between the tendon edge and the bony uh, site of apposition. And what, what were your main findings here? So as I mentioned, the uh, primary endpoints were uh, PROs, traditional PROs such as ASES, SST, constant SANE, SF12s. Uh, but the, the study was generally powered for MRI evaluation in one year postoperatively using the Sagaya score. So the uh, outcomes themselves showed that in the patients themselves, uh, we had equal response in terms of pre versus post-operative evaluation at three, six, 12, and 24 months using our PROs. Uh, but the primary significant finding was that the MRI at one year showed approximately a one point difference in the Sugaya score based upon MRI evaluation of rotator cuff integrity. In other words, in favor of the intactness of the rotator cuff uh, in, uh, uh, in response to patients who received bone marrow concentrate versus those who did not. So first of all, congratulations on the study, Dr. Cole, and I definitely think this is sort of fantastic information for those of us who have a high interest in this. Certainly a timely topic and a lot of good discussion points. One question I had was, did you notice any association between patients who had a larger tear? Were you able to, to sort of parse that out in your study and your Sagaya score and outcome differences? So the premise of the study was to try to um, enroll patients with a fairly homogeneous pathology. So the goal was a single tendon supraspinatus tear 
um, and no other uh, rotator cuff pathology. So that was the goal. So every patient had a less than three centimeter tear that was included in the study. If they were larger, they were excluded. So we took into consideration the fact that tear size might matter, and we tried to make a homogeneous population vis-a-vis -vis the tear tendon size. Did any of your patients have any postoperative symptoms from the harvest of the bone marrow aspirate? No, I would say that, you know, the good news is that while we can't um, uh, assuredly say that there's a, a difference postoperatively in terms of clinical outcomes and we have a modest change in terms of Sagaya scoring, uh, there were no complications related to the bone marrow aspirate uh, harvest. Do you have any advice for surgeons regarding ideal concentration or technique for BMAC preparation? So another great question. I would say the following. You know, one of the challenges of uh, much of the research in dealing with uh, uh, any sort of uh, biologic adjuvant to surgical intervention is that uh, we are still um, we have a lot many blind spots in terms of the dosage, the frequency, um, and uh, we the important thing is for studies like this to actually characterize what we're delivering. So in this study, we did just that. We took an aliquot of every patient who underwent a bone marrow aspirate, and we uh, performed flow cytometry to look at the fold increase in, uh, in, mono, in uh, uh, nucleated uh, cells that had receptor positivity or negativity that would be a representative of stemness. Uh, that being said, uh, we don't have much information on dosage, frequency, and so forth. So this is what is clinically done, and those who are interested in utilizing this technology, it's a pretty straightforward technique that involves aspiration of 60 cc's of bone marrow. Uh, as far as site and location, uh, there is some data that suggests that the, the number of MSCs, if that's actually important, are, are highest in the posterior superior leg spine, followed by the anterior superior leg spine. Uh, and then distal femur, proximal tibia, and even proximal humerus. So all can be sites of harvest. The challenge is nobody has done any comparative studies. They've all been based upon either uh, CFUs or colony forming units or a flow cytometry to identify, you know, sort of what's present and how they perform in culture. Uh, that being said, we don't have any studies that actually tell us which one is, is actually better. So it often becomes a situation of convenience uh, more than what we th think we know, which is superior. In this study, the, just to be clear, we use the SIS. One of the one of the primary outcomes of your study is the difference in Sagaya grade. Now, were the were the people that graded the MRIs blinded to which group the um, the patients were in? Yeah, of course, we had uh, uh, two orthopedic surgeons who were blinded uh, to uh, reading both pre and one year MRIs uh, just to categorize the tear size and the potential for recurrence. Yes, they were blinded. So as one final sort of closing question, when you see the future of this with your wealth of knowledge in the area as a leader in the area of biologics in the shoulder, what do you see as the future of how we use stem cells in optimal delivery in terms of time zero biology and, and getting it there for our patients? Well, yeah, so just, you know, you know, my, my, my high level opinion on this is that we first have to understand why rotator cuff tears occur in the first place. And the vast majority of rotator cuff pathology is sort of attritional or dystrophic in nature. Very rare do we actually see patients who have traumatically induced rotator cuff pathology or sort of overuse related. And even those patients might have sort of this genetic predisposition or diathesis. You and I know that, you know, every decade of life, we see an increased incidence of rotator cuff pathology and it largely relates to sort of decreasing biology of the tendon bone interface. And the good news is most patients tolerate it. 
it's estimated that we probably have about 6 million people walking around with rotator cuff tears over the age of 60 to 65. So we're not doing that many rotator cuff repairs. They're not showing up in our offices. We do 250 to 350,000 rotator cuff repairs a year in totality in the United States. So most patients tolerate it. And the thing that's really, I think, I find most fascinating is that we, we have spent a lot of time and energy on biomechanical constructs. In other words, um, um, trying to identify the best way to repair a tear, yet at one year we're shocked when we see a 20 to 40% re-tear rate. And unfortunately, that hasn't changed over the last decade in any great extent uh, utilizing modern techniques. So when you repair damaged tissue or poor quality tissue, it shouldn't be surprising that one year later that a certain percentage of these people actually have a re-tear or whether it's a failure to heal or a re-tear, they, they have an anatomic deficit at, at evaluation by either ultrasound or MRI. So as far as where we're going, uh, it may be MSCs. It may be, you know, I think it's important to understand that these are not likely, the response is less likely to do with the terminal differentiating of, differentiating of cells, but rather related to a paracrine effect, a growth factor effect. Maybe it's modulating the immune system, reducing inflammation, all the things that impair a good, healthy response. But, you know, we clearly need to do a much better job and whether or not bone marrow concentrate as sort of a, um, uh, an option that has a low regulatory barrier or some other technology that can help us either rewind the clock or improve the ultimate structural integrity of what we're trying to achieve. That's what we're looking for in the end game. So I think there's one step in the right direction. I don't think it's the complete answer, but I think at least, you know, through this study, it's the first study that's looked at in a randomized fashion. Hernagao uh, taught us or showed us that with a very high volume, high number of uh, MSCs based upon identification, he was able to achieve a, you know, a, a significant fold increase in terms of uh, the lack of anatomic um, failure. Um, this shows us in our study that we have about a one point difference on a five point scale that patients actually have uh, improved integrity of their repair site. But I still think we have a long way to go. Well, Dr. Cole, it's a, it's a great study. It's a great contribution. I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your insight, and I couldn't agree with you more that there's so much left to be done. Thank you both for doing this with me. This has been great. Take care. Have a great meeting. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I'm here with uh, Dr. Merzion from, Dr. from Kaiser Permanente, Southern California. Dr. Merzion, how are you? Great. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Hartzler from San Antonio is here as our guest co-host. Rob, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. We are here to discuss Dr. Mazayan's project entitled Functional and MRI Outcomes of Superior Capsule Reconstruction with Acellular Dermal Matrix. Dr. Mazayan, can you give us a high-level summary of this project? Sure. Um, we essentially looked at 53 patients who had an SCR done by five fellowship-trained surgeons over a four-year period, and the main purpose of the study was to correlate functional outcomes with MRI findings. And most of the studies that are out right now do not have a, a lot of imaging uh, post-operatively, so and the majority of them report excellent outcomes with SCR, but we wanted to see if it correlated with graft integrity. So 80% of our patients got a post-op MRI, which is a very high rate compared to what's out in the literature right now. And uh, surprisingly, we found that only 38% of the patients had an intact graft, and 62% had a graft tear, and we correlated the location of the graft tear with the functional outcomes. And those patients that had a tear where the graft uh, covered the tuberosity those patients did clinically well. The ones that had a tear where the, where the tuberosity was left bare um, or uncovered, those are the patients who did poorly. And we did not find any correlation with hematograde, the pre-op age, gender, or any other variable that had an effect on the functional outcome. 
And, and how many of these patients had a concomitant treatment of the biceps with a tenotomy or tenodesis? About a third of them. So 12 had a biceps tenodesis, 6 had a tenotomy. So what do you think is the reasoning behind the patients with the covered tuberosity doing better? That's a great question. I, I call this a biologic tuberoplasty effect, uh, which we've, we've uh, published on. And I, I basically th think that once the graft tears, uh, it covers the tuberosity and, and it prevents bone-to-bone -bone contact between the tuberosity and the chromium. So it acts as a, a biologic buffer, essentially. So um, uh, that's how I think it, it still works, even though it's torn. So I guess I would ask you if you think it, that's how it works, and if 30, only 38% of the grafts heal, have you considered just attaching the graft to the humerus or the acromion? I definitely have, and it makes sense. It would make surgery a lot easier, but I firmly believe in the SCR because Tira Mahata has shown us biomechanically it restores the kinematics of the shoulder. So it keeps the head centered on, on the glenoid and keeps the center of rotation in, in, in centered with the glenoid. If you just cover the tuberosity, your head is still going to ride high and, and the center of rotation is going to get raised because there's nothing on top, you know, preventing it from superior migration. So I, I, I thought about it. It's easier, but I don't think mechanically it makes sense to do that. So have you made any changes in terms of technique or post-operative rehab or anything to try to improve the healing rate? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what we found is the majority of the tears occurred from the glenoid side. So I think what we're doing right now with our glenoid fixation is our, is our weak point. So um, I, we, we all use three anchors in this series on the glenoid side. I think graft thickness is, is something that it, it definitely has, has changed. I personally, in my patients, um, I double over the graft. So I take a seven by four um, uh, a dermal allograft that's three millimeters thick and I double it over. So now I have a six millimeter graft. And anecdotally, it wasn't in our series, but in my last 10 patients, I've only had one, one tear. So just increasing the thickness of the graft has significantly lowered my tear rates and improved the healing rates. One of the things that I think is interesting in this study is to ask where we, what we do going forward. So I think from that, I would ask, number one, how, do you, how in your practice have these results compared to an arthroscopic debridement and tuberplasty? And then number two, with these results, how does this procedure fit into your algorithm for how you treat massive cuff tears? Sure. Um, I personally have not really treated any patients with just a debridement or, or a plain tuberoplasty. It never makes sense to, to just go in there and clean something up. I mean, and, and, the, and the results show they're short-lived. Um, they, they don't have a lasting effect. And obviously, we don't know the long-term results of SCRs. It's such a new procedure, but it just makes way more sense biomechanically um, to restore the kinematics of the shoulder. Um, and Rob, to answer your question about rehab, what I've found over the last four or five years of doing this, patients don't listen to whatever rehab restrictions you've given them or the therapist. They're, they come in, they're doing so well at two to three months after surgery, they're, they're showing off, they're raising their arm all the way. Um, and we know from the canine studies that at three months, the graft is at the weakest point and you, go, you should go slow with, with, with the rehab, but patients don't listen. They, they do what they want to do. So um, I've kind of given up on having a strict uh, rehab protocol, and um, I think patients are still doing well. Yeah, such an interesting study. I think it's such a great accomplishment for, for Kaiser and such a uh, gives us so much more information to try to determine where, what we do going forward with SCR. I really appreciate um, you coming to talk to us um, about it. Um, and uh, thank you, Rob, also for serving as our guest co-host. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to add one, one more thing. I think future studies, if they're looking at MRI, 
You can't just combine all tears into one group and compare it to intact grafts. You have to tease out where the graft tear is in, in future studies so that they're not, you, you can't combine them. It's gonna, it's gonna give you wrong, uh, poor results, essentially, erroneous results. Certainly an important insight for us to understand what to do going forward with SCR. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm here with Dr. Shrump from the California Pacific Orthopedics Group in San Francisco. Dr. Shrump, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Dr. Alex Lim from Washington University in St. Louis is here as our guest co-host. Alex, how are you? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. So we are here to discuss Dr. Shrump's project entitled Elbow Hemiarthroplasty for Intraarticular Distohumerous Fractures, Results, and Technique. Dr. Shrump, can you give us a high-level summary of your project? Uh, yeah, so we went back and retrospectively looked at our patients in, we, in which we'd done elbow hemiarthroplasty for. Um, we identified eight patients in our cohort. Five of them had uh, more than a 12-month follow-up. In that group of five that we followed up, uh, they had, on average, roughly three years of follow-up. Uh, on the whole, they had a Mayo elbow performance score of 88 and excellent range of motion and high patient satisfaction. Um, and we've seen this as an opportunity to avoid some of the potential complications of a total elbow arthroplasty in a, in a group of patients that I would call kind of a young elderly group. Um, and uh, we've been very happy with our, at least our short-term results. That's uh, great. It's, it's um, really great to hear about projects like these expanding indications. One of the things, when I read your abstract, you say appropriate sizing and length were determined by intraoperative fluoroscopy. Tell us a little bit more about that process. Tell us about your operative technique here for getting the size right. Sure. So um, it, it's worth noting uh, the implant I'm using is being used in an off-label way, um, first and foremost. And so I have a non-anatomic spool, um, but I am doing my best to fit that non-anatomic spool to the patient's native forearm. Um, in particular, in that system, there are plastic spools that are not attached to other devices that are used uh, for the bell saw um, in the ulnar resection there. Um, they're radio-opaque enough that you can see them on a fluoroscope. And so mm -hmm. I take them and I put them into the native forearm once I've removed the fracture fragments and gotten ready to do it. And I will look and see where the capitellar contact is when that spool sits in the fossa for the ulna. And I go to... to pick a spool that appropriately fits to the capitellum in that I feel like it's going to be stable. There really only are, I think, four choices in that system. And so you're often picking between either too big or too, too small, and you have to make a compromise. But um, you can clearly center in on what you think is the most appropriate size based on the, the contact and how it seats and whether or not it's stable as you uh, put your hands on either side of the uh, either side of the forearm. You mentioned the limitations in size. Do you find yourself generally, you know, it's a small group, having to oversize the spool if you're in between sizes versus, versus undersizing. Because when you're doing a total elbow with that system, the general thought is to undersize because then you can get a better radio capitellar alignment, but the worry with that would be potentially loss of stability. So um, so I, I tend to feel like be, because the spool size dictates the stem size, right. and many of these patients are, are fairly osteoporotic females, I will, if I'm in a pick between the two of them, I tend to pick the smaller size, as long as it looks stable, as, as long as, long as it fits. Right. And if you look at a normal AP radiograph of a forearm, the uh, contact area, the radial head often hangs over the edge of the capitellum some, and so you're not looking for something that gets all the way out to the edge of the radius. Uh, you're looking for something that gets out to like 85, 90% of the radial head, um, if you think about the way a normal AP x-ray looks. Um, 
And after a ligament repair, they're often substantially more stable right. than they are uh, just when you put the implant in. And so it's important to think about what your stability is going to be like at the conclusion of the case and not just at the end of the implantation process. Tell us a little bit about how you're repairing the ligaments. Um, so the ligament repair, I think, is actually the critical part to getting this to work well. Um, and in, in my approach, as I'm taking the ligaments off of the epicondylar, uh, off the medial and lateral epicondyles, I tag them with a number two non-absorbable suture. Um, I start from the intraarticular side with the free end of the suture leaving a substantial tail. I use a modified Mason Allen, so I pass out through the ligament, I pass back, I pass back and pass that over again the suture. So now I've gotten a really good hold on that. And I clamp it with, you know, probably, I don't know, 10 centimeters of suture, whatever it is, a substantial length of suture, because I'm going to pass that back through the spool. I do this on both the medial and lateral side. So I've got the ligaments secured right when I took them off the isometric points. After I'm done with the case and I've implanted the, the spool, I then take the metal passer. It's, it's worth noting that their metal passer is the only one that I found that actually fits through. And a Houston suture passer or another passer device doesn't actually fit through the right. central screw. So I use their uh, metal passer and I pass the sutures from medial lateral lateral to medial. And then I take a free needle on those sutures and I pass it over the common extensor tendon or the common flexor tendon origin and tie on the outside. But you can't tie one until you've passed them both. So it's a very stepwise process, if sure. that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, first you identify the ligaments, then you do your case, then you pass your ligaments through the spool either way, then you pass your ligaments through the common extensor, common flexor origins, and then you tie. And then the, so the ligament's obviously not healing to the implant. Where do you think the stability comes from? Do you think that the ligaments then heal common flexor, common extensor, and that's where you get stability is up the columns or? I think it comes from a number of different uh, factors. I think where the epicondylar tissue remains, I think it can heal to bone. Yeah. Um, I also think from uh, my experience doing the revision, both elbow arthroplasty and shoulder arthroplasty, these people, that most people generate a pseudocapsule that's fairly robust around a metal mm -hmm. implant. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily heal to an implant, but by doing this, I think you kind of dictate the size and laxity of that capsule. Mm -hmm. This tissue is quite robust uh, when you take it off, and it's quite obvious what it is when you take it off. If you don't tag it, it's pretty easy to lose it in your surgical field, which is why I tag it when I take it off as opposed to trying to find it at the end of the case. Um, and I think it kind of dictates the size of that pseudocapsule. And where I can, I'll repair the epicondylar tissue, but where I can't, I rely on that pseudocapsule, which is part of the reason why I do that protective overhead range of motion protocol to try not to let these people stretch out in the first month or so where they're running around. I don't have them just ranging their elbow in a hinge brace. I got that hinge brace locked for the first month. I have them coming out, lying on their back, and working on their range of motion so they don't lose their flexion extension access, um, but trying to get them uh, kind of to heal in and scar in enough that I feel like they're going to be stable. Going back to the epicondyles, I think, you know, traditional teaching with this is you have to keep the epicondyles in order to give either bony healing for the ligaments or provide support. You mentioned that you don't necessarily keep the epicondyles. Is that based on just comminution? Is that based on just sort of availability? And it seems like you don't really notice a difference with your protocol in terms of instability um, of these patients. Yeah, so uh, I haven't noticed a difference in our in the patients. Where I can, I put it back because sure. it makes me feel better. It makes me sleep better at night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not infrequently, I found myself with a small splinter of bone representing the epicondyle, right. not feeling like putting a screw in it's going to be very helpful. Um, and, you know, you, you've got a, 
a sclerotic kind of dead piece of epicondylar bone that's not attached to any soft tissue. And whether or not you put it back with a couple of cerclage sutures or other things, I don't think is going to dictate what's going to happen to it. Um, and I haven't noticed additional instability. It's worth noting, and we mentioned it yesterday uh, in our slides, we did have one instability patient and a patient who had a ground level fall right. subsequent to this. And she had a, a elbow dislocation subluxation event, which was easily converted to a total elbow arthroplasty. Um, you know, I think that uh, this is obviously not as strong as a native elbow, and it's not going to be as durable as a native elbow. And it's not going to, it's going to have different modes of failure than a linked prosthesis. Um, but in regular everyday use, I haven't seen these people becoming unstable. That's not to say that at five years or 10 years, they won't develop sure. instability. You mentioned that it's not a normal elbow. If someone, if someone's one year out from this procedure, do you give them residual limitations or do you tell them they can do what they'd like? I tell them that I would prefer if they didn't want to participate in uh, things that I think are high varus valgus activities okay. like a, a tennis or golf or other, other racket sports where they're going to, and I have this discussion with them preoperatively about, well, I worry a little bit about these things, but I would have a similar discussion with somebody if I was going to put a total elbow. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I don't give them a formal weight restriction as to what they can lift, push, or pull as I would with a total elbow. I think that's a great point in terms of that as well because, you know, you still worry about arthroplasties, but I think the weight restriction is a big uh, attractive factor about this. It's life-changing uh, for it's patients. Completely, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you think about, just think about my patient population, you know, probably a little bit less active than yours in San Francisco, but still people that are using their arms just to get themselves out of bed. And a total elbow scares me every time I put it in because I know that they're pissing on that daily just to get out of the chair. So they're not going to be playing tennis, but they are going to be putting a lot of force through that elbow. So I think this is a really, really great study to kind of show a creative way to solve a tough problem. Have you seen any, I know this is, we have early results only. Have you seen any signs of ulnar wear? Uh, I haven't seen any patients who developed uh, ulnar wear in this acute traumatic population, no. Um, they've all done fairly well. Um, their pain uh, scores have not been creeping up over time. Um, that being said, it's still a hemiarthroplasty, and they don't report, like, you know, zero pain, perfect elbow. They all kind of, it, it's good, right? Um, which is, is what I would expect out of a hemiarthroplasty scenario. Mm -hmm. In terms of, you know, you talked about, you, you talked to these patients pretty extensively preoperatively. Um, what's sort of your decision point when you're talking to them or for them between a total elbow versus the hemiarthroplasty? Is it mostly activity or is it a little bit of a balanced discussion with the patient? It's honestly, uh, it centers more on what I perceive as kind of uh, patients remaining quality years of life looking like. In my mind, a total elbow arthroplasty is a very solid operation for somebody who I think is going to use it for five to maybe ten years. And at that point, I begin to worry about the revision burden. Um, and uh, in a patient in whom I believe is likely to have a revision in their lifetime, I think a, um, a revision to a placement of an ulnar component only is a much easier revision Absolutely. than a revision with a periprosthetic fracture or a loose ulnar component or a fractured uh, ulnar humeral component. And so I see these patients as a, as a first step to, you know, a, an eventual surgery as a young surgeon um, in an area where I think I'm probably going to be practicing for a long period of time. I think I'm going to be looking after these patients. And so implanting a lot of total elbows in people in their 40s and 50s, um, even for terrible traumatic, you know, things uh, scares me quite a bit. Um, 
I, I spend more of my practice doing revision total levels than primary total levels yeah. by a factor of 10 to 1. I, I, I'm in the same boat as you. So it's uh, that that's a great point because, yeah, the, the primary ulna is way easier than the revision ulna. And I've all seen total levels done in younger people elsewhere. They come back, and it's just a complete disaster. So. Mm -hmm. Well, this is um, it's a great study. I it's a it's great to hear about uh, new and innovative thinking for difficult problems, um, and um, it's great to hear that it's working well so far. Thank you for doing this with us, Dr. Trump, Dr. Lane. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. So I'm here with Rob Hartzler from San Antonio. Rob, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me, Pete. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm also here with Dr. Brendan Patterson from the University of Iowa, who's here as our guest co-host. Brendan, how are you? I'm doing very well, Peter. Thanks for the invitation. So we're here to discuss Dr. Rob Hartzler's project entitled Radiographic Parameters Associated with Excellent Versus Poor Range of Motion Outcomes Following Reverse Total Shoulder Arthroplasty. Rob, can you give us a high-level summary of your project? Sure. So uh, this was a retrospective database study where we investigated what factors were associated with having an excellent outcome versus a poor outcome, particularly with regard to range of motion after reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. And we, we investigated a variety of different uh, factors, both patient implant and radiographic factors, which was the main focus of the study. We found that uh, there were a few uh, factors associated with having an excellent outcome, which was defined as having at least 140 degrees of forward elevation and external rotation greater than 30 compared with a poor outcome, which was forward elevation less than 100 or external rotation less than 15. So uh, what we found in the study was that a larger glenosphere and inferior overhang of the glenosphere were associated with having an excellent outcome. And glenosphere uh, was highly significant with a nine times increased odds for a 39 versus 36 glenosphere of having an excellent outcome and a five times odds ratio of having uh, an excellent outcome with a 42 versus a 36 glenosphere. For each millimeter of inferior overhang, there was 1.6 times odds of having an excellent outcome, and anterior offset of the humeral cup was highly associated with a negative outcome. In a univariate analysis, BMI was significant, but that didn't um, hold in the multivariate analysis. Um, and uh, no, in this uh, analysis, no measure of lateralization uh, of the humerus or the glenosphere was associated with an excellent outcome. So that's what we found. That's great. Um, Rob, I just wanted to ask you, uh, first of all, congratulations on this, on this great study. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, the results really focus mostly on forward elevation and external rotation. However, many patients can still struggle with limited internal rotation after reverse shoulder replacement. Can you comment on any differences in internal rotation in regards to variations in component position or size in your study? Right, so in this study, um, one of the limitations was that we only chose to uh, look at elevation and external rotation and not internal rotation. And another, another limitation was that we combined elevation and external rotation in looking at excellent versus poor outcomes. So um, specifically with regard to internal rotation, no pertinent findings from this study. We just didn't look at that variable. But... Uh, in my practice, that's certainly one of the frustrations uh, that patients have. Probably their main complaint, if they have any about a reverse, is poor ability to reach uh, up uh, around behind them. So um, that's something that I try to counsel patients on a lot. And I think um, that we don't know much about that right now. Um, 
a larger glenosphere is one thing that's been associated with uh, poor ability to reach behind, and I think we're all trying to figure out uh, if the subscapularis has a role in that uh, right now. I think it's a great study, Rob. One of the I think that I think is interesting and hard to quantify in studies like this is the remaining attached rotator cuff, as you just mentioned. Were you able to quantify status of the remaining posterior rotator cuff as a potential confounding variable for creating more external rotation? Yeah, that's one thing that we didn't look at in the study as well. I think another weakness is just that this was uh, this included patients who had a broad range of indications for a reverse. It included in our database everyone who had a primary reverse, uh, and we we don't don't really know whether these are uh, intact cuff patients or rotator cuff arthropathy patients, malunion patients. Um, so there wasn't any way for us to um, determine determine the status of the intact cuff in this study. We did look at subscapularis repair versus not repair versus unrepaired, and that did not seem to be a, a risk factor for um, for outcome as it again pertains to elevation and external rotation. Great. I was I was curious, Rob, uh, to know do you, do you think this that you would have had similar findings or results uh, with a more um, a more valgus uh, neck shaft angle? Um, I know you used a 135 in the study. Can you comment a little bit on that? One of the cautions in interpreting the study is that um, this is a single system. All uh, humor, all humeral components were 135 degrees, um, and so that is definitely uh, you don't want to extrapolate these results to Gramont style, uh, more valgus humerus. Uh, in other studies, um, lateralization in a Gramont system has been associated with poor elevation. Um, and so I think we need to be really cautious about over um, over generalizing results that are based on one specific system. I think that's yeah. I think that's really important, as you said. Um, and I think you know the last thing I wanted to ask you, or or a really uh, a question I wanted to get your thoughts on, were how um how have these results changed your practice, or have they? I mean, is is everybody now a forty two glenosphere, even a smaller you know, a smaller patient, or how do you how do you make that decision in your practice at this point? Yeah, great question. So when I started my practice, I was um, using a different system which had much more lateralization. This this particular system is either um, zero or plus four lateralization from the glenosphere. Uh, when I started my practice, I was using a minimum of plus six or plus ten for um, most primary reverses. Um, I've now and that was with much smaller glenospheres, 33 or 36. Um, now I'm using a system where I, again, have the option of a lot of lateralization. So I've, in general, been using smaller glenospheres again. Um, and this has made me worry a bit that I should be increasing the size. However, um, again, it all depends on you know the specific system. So I think that um, there, there's evidence that smaller glenospheres are just fine with more lateralization. but um, in this, I, I think that in a 135 degree system, um, if, if I had only the option of zero or four, this would certainly make me hedge towards using a larger glenosphere. Even Hopefully for a, that answers the question. Yeah. Even for a, even for a smaller patient. Even for a smaller patient. Yeah. yeah. Again, in this particular system, since it's inlay, the humerus dictates somewhat um, your options for increasing the size of the glenosphere. Um, but I think that again, if I was stuck using something that was either plus zero or plus four with an inlay 135 humerus, I would probably be, based on the results of this, trying to put in a larger glenosphere. 
think that was that was the largest risk factor, the largest factor which was associated with an excellent outcome. I think it's such an interesting question you raise as we have different systems with divergent thought processes as to how they would design the implant. On the glenister side with more or less lateralization, larger or smaller, inlay, onlay, aris valgus humerus, how do these factors all come together? I think your study is a great addition to the literature in that regard to help us understand, at least for this system, if you have these options, this is how you maximize it. Certainly going forward, it's going to be great for us to try and how do you incorporate that with other systems, with other designs? How do we, how do we, we all converge on some, some, some local maxima? Yeah, and so, if, you, if you add the ability to do 3D planning and, you know, have a yeah. transfer technology to put things essentially wherever you want to, um, you know, it's really incumbent on us to know where we should be putting things since well, we can put a variety of different components where we want theoretically. Not just where we should be putting them or where we can put them, but um, how does where we put them affect muscular tension and how does that affect not just muscular tension, but muscular tension for that specific patient? Um, and that's that's going to be a challenge, but I, I, I think that your study is a great addition, and I, I'm thankful for you for coming to the podcast and explaining it to us. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. I'm here with Dr. Mark Frankel from the Florida Orthopedic Institute. Dr. Frankel, how are you? Great. How are you? Doing great. Dr. John Barlow from the Mayo Clinic is here as our guest co-host. John, how are you? Great. Happy to be here. We're here to discuss Dr. Frankel's project entitled Acute Surgical Management of Proximal Humerus Fractures, Open Reduction Fixation versus Hemiarthroplasty versus Reverse Shoulder Arthroplasty. Dr. Frankel, can you give us a high-level summary of this project? Yeah, we, we were interested in looking at the surgical-treated uh, fractures uh, that we had done over about a 15-year period between uh, myself and my partner, Mark Mile. And uh, some of the things we're interested in is, could we see a difference in outcome? That was one thing. Could we see a difference in recovery of outcome? And could we see some difference in uh, complication rate? What were some of the main things you found? So um, we had some struggles with looking at our initial question because our outcome data was a little bit sparse. Um, the fracture population tends to be a bit different than the elective population. So we had obviously lost the follow-up. And we didn't have as a stout of outcome measures, so we used forward flexion, for example, as our outcome measure. And, and we did see there was a difference. Um, uh, the fracture patients tended to actually have the best function, and the, then the reverse, and then the hemis had the worst. Um, we also saw that there's distinctly different populations that were treated with these different modalities. So as one might expect, we found that younger patients that had uh, lower comorbidities, and we used the ASA score, which our anesthesiologists get as a, a surrogate for health status, uh, they actually did the best. and they typically were treated uh, with lesser severe fractures, and we used a near classification for that. Whereas the arthroplastic patients were older, had more comorbidities, and had more complex fractures. Um, so um, the patients that were treated with ORIF had the best outcome, reverses uh, were second, and the hemis had the, the least uh, benefit in terms of functional improvement. With those outcomes for hemiarthroplasty, do you think that hemiarthroplasty still has a role in the treatment of proximal humerus fractures? You know, I, I think if it does, it's quite limited. Um, in my personal practice, I don't use it um, because um, what I found in, in previous studies with hemiarthroplasty, if you can get a perfect reconstruction, um, you have a pretty good chance of a pretty good outcome. But even um, 
uh, in my hands, which at the time I had done several hundred hemiarthmesis for fracture, there's a 20% likelihood, even using interoperative fluoro, that I'd have some malreduction of my tuberosities, and that really uh, swayed the outcome of a significantly different. So there, it was a technical issue, and at, at one point we tried to solve that with different jigs and different implants, but uh, I, it was never really uh, possible. So a reverse prosthesis is a little bit more forgiving, that if you don't get the tuberosities perfect, patients still have pretty good outcomes. And that's one of the interesting things I thought about this paper was in some historical <coughs> series, reverse has a higher likelihood of tuberosity union, and it didn't seem like that was uh, seen as much in this series. Can you comment on um, what that may be related to? Yeah, you know, that the, this uh, series I think started in 2004 and uh, ended uh, like 50, or 99, 1999 it started, okay? So early, the early reverse prostheses uh, before the FDA were the ones that uh, we used, quote, as custom implants, and they were very, very different um, in their design. In other words, they were cemented, there was a smooth shell, and uh, arguably uh, they did not uh, have the optimal design for fracture fixation. And that, that was something we actually wanted to look at a side question, but our, our, our numbers were too small because it was fairly, it's fairly obvious with the improved designs we currently have, our fracture union is extraordinarily high uh, uh, compared to the earlier design implants. So it sounds like the hemiarthroplasty is dying and reverse is sort of taking its place to, in, uh, to some degree. What is your indications currently for open reduction internal fixation, let's say in patients over 60 or 65 or does that exist? Let's say a two-part fracture or sure. a non-displaced three-part. Yeah, I think a two-part fracture where it's a surgical neck fracture, it's widely displaced, regardless of the age, um, I think that those patients uh, do really well with a uh, with an ORIF. And you know, if you're worried about um, osteoporosis, you can augment your fixation with uh, some bone or uh, other methodology. So I think in that uh, that particular fracture type. Um, that that's a pretty good op, uh, operation still. You know, it gets more complicated when you get more displaced uh, of the tuberosities because once the tuberosities are involved in the fracture pattern, again, the outcome is in, in ORIF or HEMI, you need to get them perfect, and th that can be challenging. One of the things that I think is super interesting about this study is the high rate of subsequent fracture. Yeah, you know, that, that to me was the, the, the one thing that I think is a tremendous opportunity for, for us as a subspecialty societies to recognize that when we see a patient that has suffered a proximal humerus fracture, even if we're seeing the sequelae of that fracture, that patient has a high risk of having a subsequent fall with a subsequent fracture. And, and as such, we can intervene potentially at that moment. And, you know, there's several articles about uh, fracture prevention and methods to do it. For example, you can work on balance of, of patients because you might think that when patients tell you, you know, I just tripped over the cat or the rug or, you know, and it seems perfectly plausible that this is a one-time event. It turns out statistically these people are just much more at risk of having subsequent calls with subsequent fracture that can impact their overall health status tremendously, especially in the elderly. 
So uh, um, I think it's a great opportunity for us to develop protocols that when you see a patient who sustained a proximal humerus fracture at any point that you think about sending them to PT to work with balance, you have them see uh, their internist or their doctor to work up their bony, uh, their uh, metabolic bone profile because osteoporosis certainly can be impacted. And there are probably other features that really could be investigated because there's, there's a lot to falls that uh, uh, in the elderly particularly that we just don't know about and it'd be nice to collaborate with maybe rehabilitationist or therapist to help us be much better preventing subsequent falls and subsequent fracture. Well this is a it's a great project it's a um, for us it gives us so much insight into the outcome of the different treatments but then also this window into an opportunity for prevention of future injuries so thank you so much for doing this with me I really appreciate it. Great guys that was awesome. So I'm here with uh, Dr. Rapper Hudek from Germany. Um, Dr. Hudek, how are you? Uh, I'm fine. I should preface this by saying that we've had a technical issue, so this is our second time having this conversation, but we're going to get it right this time. Dr. Eric Riquetti is here from the Cleveland Clinic as our guest co-host. Eric, how are you? Great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thanks for um, doing this one more time with me. We're here to discuss Dr. Hudek's project entitled Cutobacterium acnes is observed as an intraarticular and intracellular commensal of the human shoulder joint during first-time shoulder surgery. Dr. Dick, can you give us a high-level summary of your project? Yeah, so first of all, thank you very much for, for inviting me. It's a, it's a big honor for me, and it's the first time on an ASIS meeting, so um, it's, it's really great to be here and to, to talk to you. So our study was about um, the occurrence of C. acnes in histological specimen, because um, as you might know, we find C. acnes in um, first-time shoulder surgery in healthy patients a lot. So there's always the same discussion whether it's a commensal or contamination or a true infection. So, and simultaneously, we know that in cell culture, C. acnes can uh, hide in macrophages and stay there for a very long time. And even in other human tissues like the prostate, it has been found intracellularly, so we were curious about looking at first-time shoulder surgery patients and to harvest tissue specimen and to look whether we can find C. acnes in uh, intracellular position. So uh, we um, took specimen from these patients arthroscopically and in open surgery, and we stained them with specific immune histochemistry and specific C. acnes antibodies. And uh, we find it in more than half of the patients in an intracellular position, and the most of them were found in the AC joint. And a quarter of the patients uh, would have been undetected by culture because we did also microbiological culture, but um, the uh, sensitivity of um, immunohistochemistry was much better. So we found it in almost 70% in immunohistochemistry and only in 43.5% in culture. So now tell us, how does the fact that, the, that this is intracellular make you know that this isn't, how do we know this isn't just lab contamination or, or, or contamination of the surgical field during the procedure? Well, that's a good question because um, we know that in cell culture, if you take macrophages and you mix them with bacteria, they can reduce the amount of bacteria by half in nine minutes. So they're pretty fast in cell culture. But it's a completely different situation in, uh, in the real life setting. Um, and because the time between grabbing the tissue specimen and putting it into a formalin container 
it was very short, under a minute. We took it over an arthroscopic cannula to, to, um, yeah, to, to go around contamination. And uh, the time is pretty quick, so we believe that there is less risk of contamination. And if there would be, we would suggest that the contaminant bacteria would, they would gather at the edges of the, of the probe which was not the case. So it was, it was in the middle, in the center, and everywhere. So when you take something with your instrument, you contaminate it, you would just contaminate the edges. And that was not the case. So I am, I am not sure, but um, it, is, it is unlikely that it has been contaminated. And Robert, as a follow-up, you know, it's very interesting that we're seeing this bacteria intracellularly. And these are first-time surgeries, so we don't really think these are cases of true infection, but how do you think this information may relate to a clinically relevant infection in someone who may have this bacteria intracellularly? What actually triggers the response of an infection, let's say when someone has a shoulder replacement? And do you have any sense of that with this data? Well, it's difficult to answer. We, we do not really know what's going on, but we know that the bacterium can reside in um, other uh, human body parts like the prostate or the uh, spine or lungs and lymph nodes and so on and it can stay there without harming us it, it is just there and um, there's uh, research groups from Japan who hypothesize that for example sarcoidosis mm -hmm. is, um, is just the reaction of our immune system to a, an intracellular commensal which is C. Agnes. And it, it, it is only affecting people who have a hyperreactive immune system to this bacterium. So it might be that when we, when we see a low-grade infection in shoulders, that it is just an immunological trigger we don't know of, like um, stress during operation or stress at a much later time point, which makes the bacteria, which are already inside the joint, grow and replicate make biofilms and stay there on the implant. But on the other hand, um, we know that we also displace them from the upper parts of the skin, from the sebaceofollicular unit, we know that. And maybe it's also a question of when different subtypes of bacteria mix up. So the subtype from the deep gets in contact with the subtype from the, from the superficial part. Maybe this is a problem because they maybe try to, um, yeah, they, they try to fight and to, um, to, to maintain their, their place where they stay. So actually, why don't you talk about that a little further too, because you did some very interesting things in the study looking at types of uh, C. acnes and what that might also mean for infectious potential. Yeah, so this is, this is also, um, this has been interesting to us because uh, we know that there's uh, five different subtypes, and when you um, when you look at their genetic profile, you see that they that they are capable of doing different things. So, and other colleagues found type two in the deep tissues as well as we did. So it was the predominant type of the of the deeper areas, and it was also linked to periprosthetic infections. And the interesting part about type 2 is that it is the only subtype which has a CRISPR Cas system, the genetic scissors, which all the other subtypes don't have. So maybe there's a key to, um, to, to determine whether there's a more aggressive type or not.
The second point is type 2 is called type defendants because it has these peely, like little arms, which makes it better connect to others and better connect to surfaces. And this has been shown in the prostate very well. So it might be that we are heading into the direction that subtype 2 is the one we aimed at, but I cannot tell that for sure. It's just a pure hypothesis on our data, but we will definitely look further and, and, and dig deeper into this issue. Uh, and clinically, there's nothing we can do right now to differentiate subtypes. Right? There's no clinical test I can use to determine whether what's growing on my culture is subtype 2. That's for research use only, but maybe someday we will have that. Well, right now, um, the method, the typical methods of differentiating subtypes is uh, genetic sequencing. So single locus type sequencing, or if you, uh, if you want to make it much more uh, sophisticated, you take do multi-locus type sequencing. Mm -hmm. But there's also easier methods of subtyping if you take the mass spectrometry. So there's also protocols on how to use mass spectrometry and to differentiate subtypes. So this is a cheaper and quicker method of doing it, but it is not as reliable as a single locus type sequencing. So this has to be done by experts in a microbiology lab who know about uh, sequence typing. Do you think, I mean, there's been some evidence in the past that there may be difference, differences between patients with and without osteoarthritis in the prevalence of, uh, of culture positivity at the time of the initial surgery. Do you think that it's possible, based on your findings, that piacnes plays a role within other pathology, like within the etiology of other pathologies we see in the shoulder? Um, yeah, that's an intriguing question, and sometimes I think that we only see the tip of an iceberg, um, mm -hmm. because uh, in our data we found uh, the, the the most prevalent site was the AC joint. So the mo most of them we found in the AC joint, and you know how close the AC joint is to the skins, not mm -hmm. so far away. So um, we could hypothesize that it just gets a little bit deeper into the joint and stays there. And the other point is, if we see osteoarthritis, um, there's so much inflammation. You see macrophages very actively, and you see lots of interleukins and um, markers and, and chemical signals of inflammation. So why is this inflammation happening in osteoarthritis? But it could be a possible explanation. But this will, this will, um, this will be the next research question, whether we could link the presence of intraarticular commensal to osteoarthritis. Tantalizingly, AC osteoarthritis is way more prevalent than glenohumeral osteoarthritis, which mirrors the findings of your study in terms of the prevalence of in this interarticular commensal in C. acnes. Robert, how about any uh, next steps in terms of the follow-up to the study? Are you planning on looking at similar techniques in revision surgery, for example? Well, so uh, we are about to look at symptomatic patients versus asymptomatic patients because we, will, we see a lot of patients with completely asymptomatic situations when you take out clavicle plates, for instance, and you take specimen and you do cultures, you find C. acnes very, very often. But these patients, they have no problems at all. 
and simultaneously you see a lot of patients in revision surgery which have early loosening, pain, stiffness, scarring, lots of symptomatic trouble and you also find siakins. So we are looking to differentiate in the European multicenter study right now whether we can find any subtype differences in these two clinically different um, types of patients. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the study right now going on and well we are we are very happy to share knowledge and to uh, to stick together to combine the European experience with the American experience I think you guys are the pacemakers in in this field and you have a very great group in, in looking for diagnosis and how to how to um, manage this yeah let's say complex but in um, intriguous problem right now with low-grade infections. Well, I think that this study is such an important contribution to underst our understanding of C-acnes and its role in the shoulder, and certainly I think it's going to have implications for us going forward as we continue to put metal implants um, into a joint that may have a bacteria that lives naturally within it. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the podcast and um, sharing this with us. Uh, thank you, Eric, for your help as well. Thank you for having me, Peter. Thank you for coming, Robert. Thank you very much. I'm here with Dr. Shauna Driscoll from the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Driscoll, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? Doing great. Dr. Brandon Erickson from Rothman is here as our guest co-host. Brandon is on the phone. Brandon, how are you? Great, doing great. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Brandon. We are here to discuss Dr. Driscoll's project entitled CT Reveals Additional Important Information for Preoperative Diagnosis of Capitellar Osteopendritis Dissecans Compared to MRI. Dr. Driscoll, can you give us a high-level summary of your project? Yes, I'd be pleased to do so. Thank you. Well, um, in patients with osteochondritis dissecans of the elbow, uh, very often they present at a time when the lesion is already quite advanced, and so treatment options start to become more narrow. And if we could get to this at a little bit earlier stage and understand uh, its diagnosis, as well as understand better how to categorize it preoperatively, we would have perhaps a little bit better method of, uh, of uh, approaching the problem. And fundamentally, this uh, work is about the concept that osteochondritis dissecans of the capitellum is a problem of the subchondral bone. The cartilage changes are secondary. And when we image bone for any reason whatsoever, we always consider that CT is the imaging of choice in terms of the definition of quality of the imaging. But with CTs, um, uh, sorry, but with OCD of the capitellum, it's very common that imaging that's used as an MRI rather than CT. Um, at our institution, we've used CT routinely for many years for this condition. And so we did this study to compare the efficacy of CT and MRI in evaluating OCD of the capitellum. Many of the patients uh, whom we see, even though we order a CT, will have already had an MRI. And so we identified a cohort of patients who had had both MRI and CT scan which was a total of 28 patients and 29 elbows, and then compared the CTs and MRIs with the hypothesis in mind that uh, CT would reveal additional information not readily apparent uh, through MRI imaging. And in fact, uh, we did find that. We found that uh, the cleavage plane under the OCD lesion is more readily identified on CT scan, as is fragmentation of the actual uh, lesion itself. And then secondary changes in the rest of the joints, such as osteophytes or small 
loose bodies in the ulnohumeral articulation, and especially the degenerative changes in the rest of the joint are more readily detected uh, in clinically, a clinically significant and statistically significant um, difference uh, using CT compared to MRI. So when we think about looking at the problem in terms of the defect, the fragment itself, the rest of the joint, CT gives us added value over MRI, and we did not find any deficit using CT instead of MRI, uh, and thus uh, CT has become our uh, imaging of choice, and we recommend CT routinely as the for osteochondritis dissecans in capitalum. Now, were there any findings that you found in MRI that you didn't find on CT? What, are there any indications still in your mind for when you would also still obtain an MRI for assessment of the periarticular soft tissues? Um, well, if we specifically want to look at the periarticular soft tissues, then there's no question MRI is the imaging of choice. Most patients with OCD of the capitellum, and we're talking about the adolescent age group, uh, do not necessarily have something of concern in the soft tissues as well. And so if we believe that we're looking at an isolated condition, we would only do a CT scan. If it's a baseball player and we're thinking that there might be a problem at the medial elbow as well as uh, uh, at the capitellum, then, then MRI would play a role in evaluating those soft tissues, of course. So for you, that's a physical exam uh, well, finding preoperative? A physical exam, if the patient has pain at the medial side of the elbow, pain. physical examination will tell you whether or not you're concerned about something there. And I would add that let's say that we have some concern about the integrity of their UCL at the medial elbow. Let's say a 14-year-old baseball pitcher with uh, pain at the capitellum, there's probably an OCD lesion, pain also at the medial side that makes us think that they might have a UCL problem. Clinical exam with a, with a moving valgus stress test would uh, make us suspicious of that or not. Then an MRI will certainly tell us about the ligament on the medial side of the elbow better than a CT would. On the other hand, if uh, in that young patient, we're concerned about an apophyseal injury or a small bony flake emulsion from the epicondyle itself, then CT is better than MRI for looking at that. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Driscoll, just, just wondering, what was, what was the driving force behind why you conducted the study? Were there patients that you had MRIs only on that came in that maybe didn't have a CT that you maybe operated on, didn't operate on, that you maybe would have treated differently? Or, or what, was, what was kind of the reason you conducted the study? Were there a few patients that you, that you didn't like the way they were treated or, or just kind of wondering? Yeah, very good question. Thank you. The driving force for the study is to educate surgeons who treat these patients that um, unless they're doing CTs, they, they may well be working with only part of the information available to them. So it's not unusual that I will treat patients who have already been operated on for OCD of the capitellum, but who never had a CT. And once we get a CT scan, we understand why the patient is still symptomatic and treat that particular finding, and then the patients do well. I'll give you an example of a patient recently referred to me by a colleague who's a very highly respected sports surgeon uh, nearby. I treated a patient uh, who was uh, a young uh, pitcher athlete in a number of sports who uh, had an eight millimeter OCD lesion that he went in and debrided and the patient simply never got better. He had two additional MRIs post-op. They were thought to not reveal anything surgical at all and he referred the patient to me and on the phone I said to him that I was going to do a CT scan because the CT will reveal fine detailed bone changes that the MRI might not pick up. You see a CT scan is a 0.6 millimeter slice interval imaging study, whereas three, three millimeter cuts are kind of standard for MRI. 
So having said that, uh, this patient still had um, a fragment of, of subchondral bone detached from the capitellum itself at the margin of the defect. So the defect was thought to be about six by eight millimeters. In actual fact, the defect was more like 10 to uh, 10, I think it was, or a bit more millimeters. And there was a retained fractured fragment at the edge of the defect, which I removed surgically. And within uh, about three weeks, this young lad was back skiing uh, fully without pain. Um, we also imaged his other elbow because it had been symptomatic for about a year as well. And he had a, a lesion in his other elbow as well, which required surgical intervention. So <laughs> yes, it's, the purpose was really to educate surgeons who are treating this, seeing this condition to use CT scan for the purpose of uh, evaluating it. And another concern is, is how do we determine if the lesions have healed if we have treated them uh, with some method of trying to get them to heal, such as drilling or fixation. And I believe that we cannot tell from MRI, but we certainly can tell if the bone is healed from CT scan. So CT is the imaging of choice in determining a final follow-up, whether or not these are healed and the patient can go back to their high-level sport that would cause significant stress. Were there some lesions that you looked at on MRI and CT where your decision as to whether or not it might be fixable with a with some sort of fixation might have been swayed by getting a CT scan, where maybe there was more bone on the backside of the fragment than you might have otherwise anticipated an MRI? Yeah, great, great question. Yes, it uh, happened both ways, where um, in one particular case, uh, one of the lesions was displaced and the fragment was up in the coronary fossa, but it had a single piece of subchondral bone, wasn't fragmented, and it was in fact a couple of millimeters thick. That mm. one we determined preoperatively was almost certain and we did, we reduced that and fixed it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, we sometimes have seen lesions sitting in situ. The bone is very, very thin, less than a half a millimeter perhaps, and, um, and fragmented and tilted. And we know that such a fragment uh, as that is really only cartilage with a tiny bit of uh, bone, if you like, in the base of the cartilage mm -hmm. and not a minimal, any form of fixation other than at most suture fixation across the top of it. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it does have an impact on our surgical decision-making uh, in such cases. And, and Dr. Trish, I was wondering, you know, we obviously, orthopedic research is difficult. And we do a lot of, you know, kind of retrospective studies, case control, cohort studies. If you, had, if you had done this study prospectively, do you think your results would have been the same? Do you think, you know, having both scans uh, on every patient rather than going back and just picking out this select group, do you think you would have found the same things, you think you would have had different findings? How do you feel about that? Well, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, a very carefully performed prospective study, I think, almost always reveals information or confirms or, or refutes information that otherwise might be thought to have been grounded from a retrospective study. So uh, it, would, it would be likely, indeed, that we would learn something of value from a prospective study. Um, I, I, to answer your question fully, I realize that I, it brings me back to the first question you asked, which was about what really you know, got this study going. And I realized that what got the study going more than anything else is that despite seeing MRIs on, on so many of these patients, as well as CT scans that I would order, I realized that there were things that I was looking for on the uh, CT scans preoperatively that I could not tell from an MRI. So for example, if a patient comes to me and has a 25 or 30 degree contracture of the elbow and an OCD lesion. I now realize that the surgical decision making um, that I go through 
involves looking on the CT scan for evidence of an inflammatory, possibly autoimmune, reaction inside the joint generally in response to the OCD. Now, for example, that patient, I would anticipate almost for sure finding evidence of early osteophyte formation in the ulnohermal joint. And that osteophyte formation would be associated almost certainly intraoperatively with the finding of penis-like lesions growing onto the articular cartilage on the margin of the trochlea and synovitis distant from the lesion itself. Hmm. That tells me that that patient is responding biologically inside the joint to a mechanical problem in the capitellum. And in such circumstances, I think that it's essential that we, um, we do not permit that mechanical disturbance to continue because that particular patient is at risk of an ongoing biological response, which is harmful. And some of these patients will get, as uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware, very significant contractures. Another finding that I look for is the sign of uh, our findings of active osteolysis underneath the, the lesion. So if you do a CT scan, you may see rounded osteolytic lesions in the base of the defect itself. Um, and this is a sign not of mechanical erosion of the subchondral bone under the fragment, but of active osteolysis in response to the instability of the fragment itself much as you see active osteolysis adding non-union in some patients um, as well. These are well seen on the CT scan very, very well, um, but are not very easy to, de to determine on an MRI. And so these are some of the findings that I go through the CT scan looking for preoperatively that would uh, impact my decision-making. So if we were doing this study prospectively, I believe that we would in fact confirm or prove that such findings are able to be recognized on CT and are either going to be very difficult to recognize on MRI or maybe only quite apparent once we already know what the CT scan showed. It I also think we would see it as well in MRI. It also sounds as though you obtained a CT scan on every OCD over a period of time. I do, yes, I routinely get it on everybody. So this, it's not as though you selected a cohort of those that looked bad on MRI and only CT'd those patients. You got a CT on everyone. That's so. quite correct. I get a CT scan on every single patient without exception. And um, the MRIs, I, I, don't, I don't believe I ordered MRIs uh, in addition to CT on any of these patients. These are patients who came to me, referred by a colleague, maybe within the institution, they already had the MRI, or referred from outside by a colleague and they've already had the MRI. But the MRIs had to be within a reasonable time frame uh, of the CT scan so that they were not, you know, distant in time that eliminated okay. some. But with that design, I think it's less likely to introduce that kind of selection bias that you might worry about with this study yeah. design elsewhere. Yes, this is not at all whatsoever a selection bias type issue right, because right, everybody right. has CT. Right. The only question is, you know, if the patient came to me directly, the patient did not get an MRI. So there is a selection right. bias. Well, Dr. Driscoll, I, I think this is a great study. I think it's a great addition to our understanding for how we diagnose and come up with the proper indications for treatment of OCD lesions. And I, I can't tell how much I appreciate you coming on the podcast and explaining it to us. Thank yeah. you, Brandon, for Thank serving as our guest host. I appreciate it. No, fantastic. Thanks for including me. It's very nice to meet you, Dr. Driscoll. This is, this is a very interesting study. I will now be ordering CT scans for all these patients for sure. Practice yeah. changing for sure. Thank you very much. Can I add one final point? Absolutely, please. And that would be that if you have a patient who is in the at-risk group, that would be a young baseball pitcher or catcher, 
uh, a weightlifter or a gymnast, possibly a tennis player, and they have pain in the lateral elbow joint, and they've had pain for, say, 10 days uh, in their sport, if you do a CT scan and pick up this little crack in the subchondral bone, it'll be while it's only a stress fracture. It's not yet a stress fracture non-union. You protect that, immobilize that for three weeks, bring them back to sport gradually for another, over another three weeks, and that'll be a healed stress fracture. It will not evolve into, I think, it will not evolve into a non-union over time. And with time, we'll have to develop a non-radiation-based method for imaging these. Uh, I'm sure that will be possible in the future. We're doing work on it. Um, others, I'm sure, will be as well. But for the moment, uh, if I have such a patient, I get a CT scan because I don't want that to show up as a non-union four months or nine months from now. I'd rather get it while it's just a crack in the bone. Certainly, if a CT scan helps you to avoid a surgery, it would be worth the small amateuration that an elbow CT is as compared to, say, a CT in the body. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you again. Great. Take care, Dr. And that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Thank you to all of our guests and guest hosts. For all our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.